If you took a piece of letter-sized printer paper and folded it in half repeatedly, it would take seven folds to be about as thick as an average notebook. How tall do you think it would be if you folded it in half 50 times? The Empire State Building? Mount Everest? Big Bird? Try the distance to the sun. It sounds crazy, but it's true. Exponential growth is a hell of a drug. Don't believe me? Modern technology means we're able to collect data about literally everything. Big data is so big, we now have to measure it in zettabytes. What's a zettabyte? Well, for reference, a Blu-ray movie is about three gigabits per hour of runtime, and a zettabyte is one trillion gigabytes. So, roughly 666 billion copies of The Waterboy. This number has become so outrageous for the same reason folding paper can take you 93 million miles into space. It doubles about every two years. Okay, so long way of saying today's show is about making paper airplanes and flying them to the sun. No, unfortunately, that's not true. Maybe next season. The amount of data that exists in the world is beyond our comprehension. Data streams have turned into rivers, lakes, and now oceans that can't be measured because we've never been to the bottom. We quite literally have the grand sum of humanity's knowledge at our fingertips. Surely that knowledge is making us smarter, right? Surely we've gotten better at feeding that information through our carefully calibrated, objective, cool-headed craniums, right? Of course not. Where's the fun in that? There's so much to unpack here, this topic will be a two-parter that we're calling Data versus Goliath. Our question for part one, do facts really change our minds? Playing the role of Goliath, human nature. My big data is bigger than your big data. I'm Scott Herms, and this is Working Better. There's no problem data can't solve, right? Worried you're spending too much time staring at your phone? Bam! Track your screen time down to the second. Feel like that thing that's really missing from your life is a detailed report of your blood oxygen levels? Bam! Get an Apple Watch. Want the government to track where you are at every given moment? Bam! Turn on your cell phone. Whether it's finding the best deal on a flight, where to live, what to eat, what car to drive, where to work, what to buy, how much to spend, your likelihood of getting COVID when you go out to get that burrito grande, there's not a decision we encounter that we can't take a deep breath and say, well, let's look at the data. But if we all made data-driven decisions, bacon wouldn't exist, we'd lock our phones in a safe while we sleep, and I would stop betting on the Bears to win the Super Bowl. Man, but 500 to 1 to win next year, I'd be crazy not to bet on them. While we may be good at saying things like, let's look at the facts, An alarming amount of research shows we're even better at throwing those facts directly into the garbage in favor of what we already believe. One reason is due to what's called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias means we seek out and favor information that confirms what we already believe. For example, I already know that my coworker Kent is, generally speaking, a monster. So when I see Kent in the hallway helping another coworker pick up paper she dropped, I arrive at the most logical conclusion. He's trying to steal her watch. The new raw data, Kent helping someone, is no match for my existing belief that Kent is the worst human being that has ever lived and will ever live for all time. However, that is not confirmation bias. That is the truth. 
One of the most famous studies of confirmation bias came from researchers at Stanford University in 1979. Participants were divided into two groups. One group supported the death penalty as a deterrent to crime. The other opposed it, believing that the death penalty has no effect on crime. Each group was then presented with two studies. The first study confirmed what Group A believed, that the death penalty deterred crime, supported with big, juicy data points. The second study confirmed the opposite, with its own equally compelling data. Participants then rated the credibility of the data. Both studies were entirely made up, and both had the same effect. Those who were pro-death penalty rated pro-death penalty crime deterrence data as highly credible. Those who opposed the death penalty said that the data was bogus and that data saying crime wasn't affected by the death penalty was all but conclusive. We favor the data that supports what we already believe. You see it all the time. At work, people will worship data that supports their argument, but will turn into Jack Bauer and interrogate the hell out of any information they don't like. Confirmation bias appears to be deeply ingrained in us. Even if we're made aware of its existence, we still tend to do it. The theory is that it allows us to rapidly process information and avoid danger. As humans evolved, it saved us from having to think in life-threatening situations. Cognitive scientists Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber also point to the fact that in hunter-gatherer groups, social standing was the most important survival mechanism. So when it came to convincing others that they should go hunting for saber-toothed tigers while you reorganize the berries at home, winning an argument was more important than being accurate. The human mind is wired to put up a fight against facts. It's our nature. But it also used to be in our nature to communicate only via spoken word. For almost all of our existence as a species, around 200,000 years, no one wrote. And then for thousands of years, reading and writing was a relatively niche skill set of the highly educated. So is the problem we don't have the tools and understanding to harness the data that surrounds us. The, the discipline of data science has exploded so rapidly, it's easy to forget that it's still a relatively novel idea in mainstream society. Don't believe me? We track the Google search volume for data science and fax machines. In 2020, data science was 36 times more likely to be searched than fax machines. That makes sense. When do you think was the last year that fax machines were on top? The last year that searches for fax machines were more popular than data science? Anyone? Come on. Take a guess. I can wait all day. Oh, oh yeah, right, this, this isn't live. 2009, Barack Obama had just begun his first term as president and fax machines were as relevant a business asset as data science? <laughs> We've come a long way, but the growing pains are real. In our race to inject scientific thinking into virtually every facet of life, core principles of good science can fall by the wayside. So what's the answer? We'll all have to define what a regression analysis is in order to renew our driver's license? That we'll finally start flossing twice a day once we understand how to calculate when gingivitis becomes statistically significant? Not exactly. Some of the push for data literacy is simple, good citizen, good consumer sort of stuff. Check your sources. Consider the broader context the data point might belong to. Don't get all your news from an Instagram account called the Tinder blog. You know, the basics. It's easy to take data at face value. Asking questions to dig a little deeper is harder. 
Take the debate about genetically modified food. The Oklahoma State University Department of Agricultural Economics asked consumers whether foods made with genetically modified ingredients should be labeled as such. 80% said yes. Seems like a good rationale for a law then, right? But 80% of those same consumers also said the label should explicitly indicate if food contains DNA. For those keeping score at home, yes, you heard that right. And yes, all living things have DNA. So if we avoided food with DNA, we'd, you know, die. The first number on its own seems to make a compelling case, but a little more context reveals the data might be skewing towards people who have incomplete knowledge or are possibly just terrified of acronyms. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a bad idea to label food as GMO, but you can't use that data point to prove it's a good idea. We all need to think about how we engage with data better. That's Carl Hampson, CTO of AI and Data from Kinnancarta Europe. Carl says improving our relationship with data and facts means being naturally skeptical and curious about the information we encounter. If I handed you a bottle of water and the cap was open, you're going to question that. You're going to be like, hey, I just bought this water. You know, like, well, where do you get that from? It's already open. I'm not going to drink it. So actually, it's a natural response. Why don't people do that with data and information? Other research suggests that the less we know about a topic, the stronger our biases actually tend to be. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to uphold key provisions of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. After the ruling, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey to gauge public reaction. 36% were in favor of the ruling, 40% opposed it, and 24% expressed no opinion. Then they asked what the actual ruling was. Only 55% of the people were able to do so. So 76% had no problem giving an opinion, but only 55% actually understood the question. One school of thought is certainly a logical one. Increase the actual understanding of a topic, and those biases are less likely to get in the way. It's often referred to as the deficit model. So in theory, if people spent less time being outraged by the news around an issue and more time understanding the issue itself, arguing with your aunt on Facebook might be replaced by arguing with your aunt on the phone. You know, baby steps. Dr. Jenny Rankin is an award-winning educator, author, and data scientist. She says we should work towards over-the-counter data, that data should be something that can be safely and properly used without an expert. We asked Carl, is that a good idea? I love the idea of, of the trust and the idea of packaging data in a way that you, you can take it, consume it for a particular purpose. It's documented. You know, all of that good stuff for me is, is actually, it's productizing data. That's really the, the bigger idea, I think, you know, to take away. And that idea of I'm handing you a bottle of water, you trust it in the same way because, you know, you look at it immediately, interpret it, it's from a, a recognized brand, it's the integrity is there. Imagine thinking the same thing with data, you know, and therefore you can take that and build upon it, do the same, productize it, add more value, and put that back into the product ecosystem. Make this data, these gobs of information, easier to access and understand, and we might begin to close the gap here. Carl underscored what side of the equation needs the most help. So we don't need more technology, really, at the moment with data. That's not to say that in the past we haven't, but we have so much technology now. So 
What we have is a people issue. What we have is a people issue. Sounds like planet Earth's mechanic explaining what's making all that racket. It's us. We're the problem. <sighs> Again. Because while we absolutely can improve our ability to interpret, interrogate, and understand raw data, there are still bigger forces at play. Another reason facts and data have a hard time changing our beliefs? That's not how they're formed in the first place. In their book, The Knowledge Illusion, authors Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach argue that our beliefs are forged through powerful cultural contextual factors that make them nearly impossible to change. With that in mind, we'd like to go on record here at Working Better to not shy away from taking a stance on controversial topics with a bold belief of our own. And though we may lose a few subscribers and sponsors, so be it. <clears throat> the earth is round. There, I said it. When we're talking about how group think can beat well-established facts, the flat earth movement is a topic that's hard to avoid. Even the most conservative estimates measure the growing number of flat earthers in the millions just in the US alone. There's lots of ways to explain the phenomenon, but undoubtedly, one is that people discover a sense of community. They attend conferences and gatherings around the world. They forge friendships and find identity and meaning in the movement, in the pursuit of what they believe is the truth. And that becomes strong armor against any evidence that says otherwise. Here's a clip from a National Geographic documentary in 2019. Your belief in the earth being flat flies in the face of Hundreds of years. Years of evidence, of scientific evidence that the world is round. Not only that, but we have satellite imagery. We have photos from space yes. that prove that the Earth is round. Right. And nobody here believes any of that. We all can be guilty of this type of thinking in one way or another. We instinctively ignore or discredit data that threatens part of our identity. A chef is much more likely than an average person to be skeptical over pizza-making robots. It's not that Blockbuster didn't have data indicating more and more people were consuming media online and ditching their DVDs. The facts threatened the core of who they were, so they were effectively ignored. Someone wiser than I once said, it's hard to get someone to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. With that in mind, I'm thrilled to be joined by someone whose job does depend on them understanding data. Dr. Jeremy Hoffman is the chief scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia and a professor at the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. Jeremy specializes in earth science communication, data-driven and community-based participatory science, and science center exhibit content development. He's been highlighted in the Grist 50 and has been written about in publications like the New York Times, NPR, STEM Jobs Magazine, Upworthy, and yes, folks, our very own Working Better podcast. Jeremy talked with us back in episode five about how cities are affected by climate change. We're thrilled to have him back to talk about data and the importance of science-based education. All right. In this episode, we've been exploring the many ways human nature gets in the way of properly understanding facts and data. As an earth scientist, it's probably safe to say it's an area you have experience in. Is that true? Yeah, and as a uh, as a science communicator at a big science and technology center like the Science Museum of Virginia, we're always looking for ways to engage folks in 
meaningful science to impact their lives. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what uh, you've been working on at the Science Museum? Yeah, sure. Well, in the broad sense, the Science Museum of Virginia likes to think of itself as the marketing agency for science. And, you know, of course, the elephant in the room uh, virtually in everything that we're doing these days is trying to center the experience around COVID-19 and the ongoing pandemic from last year, you know, focusing on the most breaking science, most reliable science we could uh, share about things from masking to focusing on, you know, cleansing surfaces to maintaining distance and wearing a mask. And then now it's shifted into, you know, reinforcing the safety and reliability of vaccines to alleviate ongoing pandemics. So that's kind of been coloring the whole background of work these days. But at the same time, you know, the Science Museum is dedicated to communicating climate change and its impacts on the Commonwealth of Virginia for the last several years. And so that work is ongoing, working on explaining how something as big and seemingly far away in space and time as climate change is, you know, in our backyards. You know, how does something so seemingly so far away in space and time impact me uh, in my day-to-day life? And then finally, you know, just broad brush, you know, we're trying to uh, integrate real-world science all the time into every aspect of the institution, from our exhibits to our social media content to our external communications. So it really is a, a job that allows me to, to live, breathe, and, uh, and explain science throughout the week in the years. And one of the things, and you mentioned it with COVID, I think that as a consumer of that data, of that information coming from the scientists that is either frustrating or hard, is that like the research is happening in real time, right? And so we get as, you know, a uninformed consumer, I might think, wait a minute, I was just told A, now I'm being told B, now I'm being told A again, or I'm being told A subprime. Like I, the message keeps changing. And, and if I step back and say, well, yeah, it's because we're, we're trying to learn and, and react to this data as it's happening, you know, and so we're going to see some fluctuation as people get new information, then you're going to come out with a new hypothesis. Is that how you're seeing it as well? And, and how, how do you decide how to tollgate that information in such a way that you're not seeming to like spin 180 every other day? Right. And that's such a good point. I think the best and most clearest example of how reliable scientific information has needed to be updated as we discovered new things was our experience at the beginning of the pandemic to where we are now. What do I mean by that? Well, originally it was continue to wash your hands religiously between every single touch of any surface, um, which is good practice. That's good public health practice to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then things like, you know, uh, making sure that you're cleaning every single surface, um, you know, it's become clear through laboratory experiments and observations and studies based on how COVID-19 spreads among people is that that's not a really viable way to catch COVID-19. It's much more about avoiding cramped, uh, crowded, and poorly ventilated spaces. So I think we saw that changing information coming out from trusted voices like the CDC and the National Institute of Health that was confusing to people or, or um, didn't you have it right to begin with? You know, and it is hard not coming from a scientific training to see updated information and more reliable information as we kind of ever, I think Ed Yong said it was like science is more of a, a, a stumbling towards ever less <laughs> uncertainty is the way that he put it. And so that's been the process. We watched every, you know, 6 billion people, 8 billion people on the planet got to watch this happen in real time. So 
we've had a clear example of how information has to evolve as we discover new things. And I think it's been about reliably having one voice from trusted institutions has been really important. So at the Science Museum of Virginia, we rely wholly on things like the World Health Organization, the CDC, and then the Virginia Department of Health um, more locally to help us frame how we are explaining this information. But we get to add in our own personal brand to that messaging. So, you know, quirky, unexpected, uh, surprising sorts of comparisons that really lodge themselves into people's consciousness. You know, the, the sticky facts about things and how amazing the scientific process is instead of focusing on, hey, we told you this one thing in the past and now we're telling you this. Isn't science amazing that we've gone from this kind of an understanding mm. to a much more nuanced understanding in a matter of months? It's truly amazing. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think, I think you hit upon it where a lot of it is how, what's the narrative? How do you tell a story that's going to stick in people's minds instead of just shooting out, hey, we said this in March. Now we're telling you something in November and let's act like that never happened, right? Just, I think you have to sort of say this is part of the process. It's always been at the center of science communication to figure out how to build a story around what we're discovering. And I think it's central and important for uh, science communicators generally to, you know, really think about their audience and where they're coming to the to the equation and where they're receiving that information. You know, people are scared, people are lonely, people are frustrated. All of those things color the way that they interpret what you are telling them. And so having the kind of personal humility to recognize that you're coming to this situation with your own background and understanding and frustrations is also critical to to really maintaining a consistent and reliable voice among all of the other chatter that's going on around you. Uh, you mentioned, I think, some of the things that you talk about to, 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 uh, that you wanted to make the information more sticky. Can you talk about some uh, examples that you can give that where you feel like you've been successful in taking something, you know, which could be maybe hard to grasp and, and making it really more impactful to people? Right. Well, um, I always fall back on examples from when I was a graduate student at Oregon State University. and. Um, you know, the idea of what's known as the big one or a giant magnitude nine earthquake that's expected to befall a particular fault zone just off of the coast. And it will create a tsunami that is, you know, beyond imagination, the devastation to which is hard for people to fathom, you know, and that kind of the reality of that risk versus the perceived, the perception of that risk is very different. And so, what we started to do in my early times as a science communicator was trying to figure out how do we get people to remember the simple things around uh, risk mitigation should an uh, earthquake exist or happen. So what do I mean by that? We started doing flash mobs around earthquake science communication. <laughs> and um, we called it flash mob science because what we would do is recruit a large group of people to pretend as though an earthquake was going on. And so what the main takeaways from emergency preparedness organizations in Oregon and Washington is to, um, you know, duck and cover, get under some sort of table and stay there and wait until the, you know, it's, you don't really have a lot of options, but a lot of injury can be avoided by ducking, covering, getting something over the top of your person to avoid, you know, some sort of something falling on you. And so we, we staged several of these flash mob science experiences. And we're able to show that that surprising kind of event 
you know, something that you weren't counting on happening sticks with people for a long time. So surprise is actually one of the main ways that we know that information will be retained and then remembered for a lot longer than if it's something that's completely not interesting. And so this can be apply in your everyday life. People that commute by bicycle or by vehicle every single day, nobody remembers one individual, you know, commute where nothing interesting happened. But of course, you're going to remember that one day where you got a hole puncture or you got pulled over or you got something, it doesn't align with your expectation. So surprise is a very powerful way that we can make scientific information also very sticky. That, that, that's great. I like that. And it's a lot better. Uh, flash mob is a lot better than the sneaking up behind people and yelling method, which, which I would have done. So I, I really, I, I think uh, that's why you have your job. Yeah. The, the continual <laughs> screaming doesn't work that well these days. Yeah. Are you encouraged by the next generation of scientists that you encounter through your work? I'm so lucky to get the chance to mentor several young scientists uh, at the University of Mary Washington, the University of Richmond, Virginia Commonwealth University, and Old Dominion University here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I am floored continually by their ability and their sensitivity to cultural issues, their centering of equity in their desire to produce meaningful science information. You know, they want to use their scientific training for good as well as kind of base level amazement with the scientific process. So I am so taken by what these young minds are considering and concerned with as they move through their degrees. They're really starting to see the connections between things like science and policy at the very outset of their degree. And how do I position myself to not only be a great scientist, but be a great communicator and be able to reach people where they are and be able to, to resonate with stakeholders at various levels of governance. That to me is so different from where I came to it as an undergraduate and young graduate student was just through the amazement of the natural world around me, which is not to say that that's bad. If that's uh, you know the motivation for being a scientist, that's wonderful. But the awareness of how science and society work together or apart is one thing that I think separates this next generation of scientists from previous ones. Yeah, I'd have to agree in a variety of fields, certainly in computer engineering, data science, that people are now realizing that's not just enough to be excellent at the science end of it or the engineering end of it. If you can't make people understand what the problem is and why your solution is going, is going to be helpful... Uh, may not be the best, but it's certainly going to help it, um, then it doesn't matter, right? You can have a great solution, but if you can't sell the story of it, 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 it doesn't matter. Yeah, I agree 100% that these, um, these students are finding it much easier to connect between their motivation, the, the impact on the world, and why they're learning how to do these things. And I think that it's also a signal to the education system that we've been doing better and better about connecting real world issues to curriculum that students encounter throughout various um, degree programs across the country. Yeah, as you said earlier, one of the two sort of big issues that are confronting us right now, uh, among others, but two on sort of the science front are COVID and the other you said was climate change. Uh, You know, what do you feel, you think like changing data literacy or science literacy could help maybe people understand better uh, the severity or the, the urgency behind climate change? So I do think that the more, well, actually my answer might surprise you, Scott, is that I think that there's only marginal gains to be had from increasing the data literacy for something to the scale of climate change. And I'll tell you why. We, we know actually the main predictors that 
uh, uh, behind whether someone wants to take very swift and decisive action on climate change and those that dismiss it entirely as, as mm. something risky. And those have to do with more with your identity. They have to do mm. with what, what your core values are. And so while I do think that data can be very, very strong, it can be very strong for particular people. Whereas on that other side of the spectrum where people's values don't align with the sorts of things that need to happen in order to address the climate crisis, then data don't matter anymore. And it's taken the climate science communication field a long time to start to recognize that it truly is about connecting with communities through trusted voices. You know, who are you hearing about this information from? Is it someone that looks like you? Is it someone that engages in the same activities as you? You know, I imagine like someone like a, a sports caster or something, you know, on Monday Night Football talking about the heat exhaustion that players of the future might encounter because of climate change. That might turn some heads, you know what I'm saying? As well as, you know, something like doctors having conversations with their patients about how um, a certain climate stressor disproportionately affects them because of where they live in a city. I think that those are the sorts of trusted voices, both in, in you know, public eye as well as professional life, that can be having these conversations, helping to move the needle on public awareness of the climate change impacts that will affect them in their day-to-day lives. Without that, it's, it truly is, uh, in large part, just kind of extra data um, until you start to connect it to you know, someone's backyard or their front porch. That, that makes a lot of sense. We are inherently very social uh, creatures, right? And so we respond more to social cues than data cues, right? So it's more likely... It's in a different context, but uh, there was the book uh, Nudge, which was around behavioral science, where um, they they got people, more people to sort of pay their taxes just by sending out a postcard that said, you know, 96% of the people pay their taxes. That's it. Not like, shouldn't you pay yours, but just sort of like, oh. One of my favorite examples of that, Scott, is, you know, like the number one predictor of whether or not you have solar panels on your house. If your neighbors do. Yeah, right. (laughs) If your neighbors do. Yeah. That's like one of the one of the, the the most clear examples of if you know that's not a policy position you know it's it's just I want that because they have that and there's nothing more like rudimentary and lizard brain kind of reaction um, real yeah. realistically so it, it it really gets down to that core reactionary part of our brain um, that uh, that a lot of this data literacy is. Um, is is among, but maybe not central to um, kind of communicating risk and urgency. Yeah, I, I would also hope too that maybe it's that then the person sees their neighbor, they have that conversation of, oh, I see you got solar panels. Why'd you do that, right? And so it's it's an immediate thing. A part of it could just be, oh, they have solar panels. Maybe I should look into that, you know. And then they start. They're not just sort of like, oh, that's some crazy tree hugger thing. I don't need that. That's not going to help me. But then people see like, oh, I can I can I can push energy back to the data grid. Oh, I can like be energy independent myself. I get credits. I get paid back for this. Oh, yeah. And one of my favorite examples of kind of those trusted voices is from the work of Climate Central, which is a group out of New Jersey that has spent a long time training weathercasters and meteorologists Mm -hmm. to communicate the impacts of climate change. Meteorologists, for the most part, are the only scientists that majority of people are going to interact with on their day to day. So first of all, they're really trusted members of their communities. And by communicating, hey, this really extreme rainfall event, these sorts of events are becoming more common because of this climate change thing that you've heard about. It's more likely to be accepted and met with like a sense of curiosity and, and wonder and, and interest to learn more than if you know someone that they don't trust, they don't recognize as part of their community brings that same message to them. Yeah, I think that's great. 
Final question. One of the things we talk about is an unconscious bias, right? Which is sort of a, an innate human characteristic. Do you feel like, as a scientist, that's made you more aware of your own biases or able to sort of realize, at least in retrospect, uh, that you're being, you know, that you may have perhaps uh, brought a bias to the table? I certainly think that uh, understanding your own personal biases is a, is a very introspective piece of work. And scientists are not trained any differently than the rest of us in how to be introspective. So at a, at a base level, I don't think that I'm any more prepared to, uh, than others to, to understand my biases. But what, what I do think the scientific mind frame provides you with is the ability to understand progress. And again, that changing information through time, being comfortable with changing your worldview based on that kind of new data being incorporated into uh, your understanding. I do think that it's also, you know, being experimental and figuring out uh, what works and what doesn't under certain situations and how, how do I start to incorporate this information uh, into my day-to-day life. So while I don't think scientists are any more prepared to investigate their own biases than others, I do think that we bring uh, and we have a certain training in incorporating that information into our day-to-day lives to produce a more you know, positive outcome. But ultimately, it is a, a journey into your own worldview. And, and it, it, yeah, it's a difficult process. And then, of course, the, the classic idea of like, that we know there are unknowns, and then there are unknown unknowns. Of course, everyone has uh, uh, blind spots, you know, things that even if we do as much introspection as possible, we're never going to uncover them without conversations with others and seeking out opinions and understandings of the world that are different from ours. So introspection is the first step and then being able to hear and listen to others' experiences and how that relates to your own understanding of the world is also as important as doing the own introspection to identify your own biases. Well, thanks a lot, Jeremy. I think that really helped uh, cast a new light on, on, our, on our topic about different ways to try to help people understand what, what they're hearing. Is there anything else you want to add before we go? A quick fact about vaccines sure. that I've learned recently. As of April 2020, the FDA lists 85 different vaccines that are licensed for use in the United States for various diseases. Doctors currently recommend 16 of these by your 18th birthday. And to put that into perspective, there are 237 vaccines that are in some level of development for COVID-19 alone, according to the World Health Organization. And I think that that kind of scaling really identifies the, the magnitude of the scientific endeavor that's going into identifying safe and effective vaccines for this illness. I think that's really great. That really gives a sense of the gateway that they've run through to, for those, I think it's now what three, possibly four vaccines that we have in the marketplace. So I think that's, that's a great piece of information. Now we just have to find a surprising way to tell people that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope this has been useful and, and thanks for uh, reaching out and I'm happy to, happy to do this again in the future. Just give me a heads up. I'm usually pretty responsive. So. Thanks, Jeremy. Huge thank you to Jeremy again for a great conversation and to Carl Hampson for talking with us. So, what have we learned today? There's an overwhelming amount of information out there. It is rarely presented to us in an easy-to-digest format. When it is, we are terrible at understanding numbers and probability. Furthermore, we only pay attention to those facts that support what we believe in. We are all going to die. Learning how to better understand and utilize raw information starts with better understanding our own innate biases. 
It can make us better collaborators when we recognize why our coworkers seem to be clinging to one piece of data. When our instinct is to discredit information that doesn't support our point of view, we can be more aware that our old friend confirmation bias might be popping in to say hello. Our complicated relationship with the truth isn't new by any means. But clearly, the internet is magnifying those biases. As the rate of new information intensifies, so does our hunger for it. We jump quickly from article to article, video to video, which means stopping to fact check becomes even less likely. And even when we try, the technology of disinformation is making it more difficult to separate fact from fiction in the first place. Which brings us to part two of Data versus Goliath. Listen next week as we ask, has technology broken the truth? This episode was produced, written, and edited by Max Parcell. Chris Mitchell is our sound designer and engineer. Luke Parcell wrote and recorded our theme song and all the other music you hear throughout the show. And production support from Bell and Battisti. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe. Reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn to give us more data about how we are doing so I can cherry pick the information that reinforces my belief that I am crushing it. If you don't believe that social media exists, you can always send us a message by way of the friendly mole people who live inside our hollow earth. They are slow, they don't say much, but they can always be trusted. See you next episode.